You are listening to the For Flourishing Sake podcast by Frederica Roberts. Welcome to episode 50. This is the fourth of the extended podcast episodes over the next few weeks, where you will be able to listen to the replays of the For Flourishing Sake book launch events. Today, I bring you the second half of the second panel discussion of the book launch extravaganza. This panel was recorded live on the 18th of June, the day the Kindle edition of Flourishing Sake was published. I chaired the panel myself and the panellists were Flora Barton, head teacher of Crowmarsh Gifford Church of England Primary School, Kelly Hannigan, mental health and wellbeing consultant, Patrick Otley O'Connor, education consultant, leadership coach and head teacher and at the time executive principal at North Liverpool Academy and Rebecca Teague, head of school at the University of Birmingham School. In the second half of the panel discussion, the panellists discussed what their interpretation of a whole school approach to character and positive education is, then moved on to an interesting discussion about how we catch character and well-being behaviours before moving on to a fascinating conversation about how we bring people on board that don't understand what we're trying to do. We close the panel with each panellist sharing their hopes and dreams for the future of education. You can watch back all the panel video recordings on the forflourishingsake.com website. The final panel discussion will take place on the 21st of August, the day that the For Flourishing Sake paperback will be published. And the panel will be at 12.30pm UK time, that's BST, and it will go out on YouTube and Facebook like all the others. And you'll also be able to find it on the forflourishingsake.com website. The next, I suppose, follow on from that, which is, you know, the, this whole school approach and um, what actually do we understand by whole school? Because, you know, we've got we've talked a little bit about staff and we've talked a little bit about the kids and, and then just touching on, on the parents. Um, and obviously in the book, I've tried to kind of bring together examples from so many aspects of, of positive education. And some people are doing all of them and some people are doing bits and pieces. So, uh what what's your understanding of whole school? And I'll come to you, Beck, because your school was built from scratch with character education in mind. So I suppose it's a good starting point to come to you on that one. Yeah, so we um, follow the Jubilee Centre for Character Education's model of having a court, taught and sought curriculum. So we have dedicated periods during the week, um, informed time and as a specific lesson, where we start off in key stage three, introducing the children to a virtue vocabulary. So they're familiar with the words that they need to use when they're talking about what they probably do and know, but might not call empathy or resilience. So we we have a a specific focus on learning the vocabulary. Then we look at examples from the real world, um, from history, contemporary examples, examples from the news where they can see virtues being used and also vices being used. So they can see the advantages and the outcomes of of virtuous behaviour. And then we encourage practice and reflection so that they can see how they're developing their own character. The court part um, is staff modelling every day, being civil to each other, saying please and thank you, showing compassion and showing genuine care for for each other and for for the pupils and the parents in our community. 
And then the sort aspect comes from a three and a half hour enrichment program that we have on a Thursday and Friday, where pupils have the opportunity to work through specific projects that will focus on certain virtues. So um, civic virtues, perhaps through a volunteering in the community program, resilience through everyone doing the Duke of Edinburgh program, and then a Friday session where the whole school can opt in to different activities that staff offer, um, often putting themselves out their own comfort zone. So they also learn a little bit of, of courage and are curious in trying out new things where pupils can practice the things that they've learned in practice. Thank you so much for that. And um, I did actually go and witness some of those activities happening on a Friday <laughs> afternoon when I came into school, which was brilliant. I got sent home with um, some amazing um, bakery, actually, that uh, some of the kids and staff had made. Uh, but I witnessed fantastic music happening. And uh, and one of the things as well that you were telling me about is that um, there were sessions where the, the staff read to the kids as well. So not something that you would expect in secondary school, but that I thought was quite interesting as well. So where does that fit into the, um, you know, the court sort and, um, and taught elements of it? I think the, the focus on literacy, first of all, we know there's a big gap in, in um, the, well, how important vocabulary is in, in academic achievement and that pupils do come from houses where they're not read to and where they don't have access to books often don't do as well as pupils where there is a rich literacy heritage in, in families. So first of all, it's for that reason, but also we find out about the world by seeing the world represented back to us in stories and by developing a real passion and love for learning. We hope that students go off and read all about the, the, the possibilities that there are out there. So we have half an hour every single day where staff um, just reads to children. And you say it's, 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 it's so common in primary and it's often just forgotten when kids come to secondary, but you will see a class of year 10 sitting, listening to why we should all be feminists or a year nine group listening to Lord of the Flies, absolutely captivated. And I, I really think it's made a big difference to empathy and compassion and also a love of reading in our school. Brilliant. And and quite a challenge, I suppose, uh, for the teachers as well to put themselves in that kind of role where perhaps in a secondary school they wouldn't be expecting to be reading to, to the children and teens, which is, again, an, another way for them to be brave as well. And so you've talked about, you know, the, it being caught, sought and taught. So, you know, we teach character, we, we catch character. I, I'd like to expand on that a little bit and we seek out the character as well. And I suppose that can also be uh, looked at from the, the well-being behaviours perspective. So not just the character strengths, but all the different well-being behaviours. So how do we catch this? And can you give us some examples? You've mentioned some, uh, Beck, from, from your school. Um so maybe if I come to you, Patrick, um, because some of the stuff that you've talked about in terms of people taking responsibility for their well-being, etc., um, uh, comes around the sort of role modelling. But I remember you telling me a bit of a story around sort of um, the early adopters and all of that. And, and maybe, you know, how, how do we catch these behaviours? Uh, well, I think just to pick up on a few things that Beck was saying, I've really, first time I've heard you speak, Beck, I really enjoy I'm hearing there, and I fancy a visit at some point, maybe. But just to pick up on the previous point when you said about uh, sort of di about diversity within schools as well, and and, and again, 
at the at the diverse ed conference at the weekend somebody said if, if you can't see it you can't be it and for students to be able to see people from their reflect from their own community as well as part of that is and then creating that culture and that environment is really important to setting the, the scene for people to flourish but, but bringing that back on then to uh, creating a culture of uh, the and, and the first adopters you've just talked about there the um we when I started in North Liverpool, we revisited our values-based vision and boiled that down to a variety of things because we were very offset focused and very focused on what we were doing rather than why we were doing it and then looking at how we're going to do it. So we had a big change and tipped some things on its head. And, and I'll give you one example there uh, around uh, our science curriculum where we, we use that with students to engage. And we, we with, the, with the staff, we talked about four things, the students to aspire, have quality experiences, part of the community and achieve and likewise for the staff. So with our year seven, year nine curriculum, um, we, we, we the experience they wanted to give during that time was they wanted to have a firework display on November the 5th in the area where there's quite a lot of antisocial behavior around that time. They wanted to show, and there'd never been one in the area. Uh, so there were all sorts of focus, uh, focusing the lessons around, uh, <clears throat> around the history, uh, the culture of fireworks, where it happens elsewhere, the science, of fireworks and explosions and forces and a whole variety of things with lots of work where the students, the older students work with the younger students. Uh, we had experts coming in. We had universities speaking about those things as well, where I'm most able. And actually just unpicking completely to ignite those fires and where children were keen to engage and had a passion, we hooked into their passion for their passion projects and helped those grow. And then as, as that started to grow, made sure that it was always cascaded to somebody else to grow. And that's why the early adopters, the ones who, who come in and jump in first, how can they then spread and encourage and get that going with others? We did that in the first year and, and over 600 people came to see this firework display, which is the biggest thing we've done in the community for a long time. The police told us the antisocial behaviour dropped in the area around the, at the evening to almost zero for the first time ever. Uh, and we had grandparents, parents, families, every, everybody there. It was, it was a wonderful event. Did the same again last year and just over a thousand people turned up. It's now part of what we do. And uh, all those things then captured within a schoolhouse system uh, around the, uh, uh, the voluntary work and community work and other activities and groups that we brought in to be part of it, around the food that we supply on the evening to give uh, out into the community. Oh, just it just cascades and grows. So finding out a passion and then hooking people in and whatever turns those people on, help grow that. Consequently, achievements gone up in science. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Patrick. And, and again, so much to, to unpack. And um, you're saying there, um, as, as an aside, how much you enjoyed listening to, to Beck. And it's, it's, I, I love listening. I could listen to all of you all day because this is what was such a joyous thing to do while writing the book. And um, it, it looks like people watching are enjoying as well. We've had some likes and loves from uh, coming in from Facebook and there's loads of tweets happening. So trying to unpack um, some of that, one of the things, obviously, when we're talking about early adopters is how do we uh, bring people on board who perhaps don't quite understand what we're trying to do? Um, and that could be from a parent's perspective, um, you know, when you're making changes, uh, sometimes I suppose even the pupils. I mean, I know I've been in uh, in schools where I've done some of this work as an external provider. And, and one school I went into where I was working with six formers, um, so for our international audience, 16 to 18 year olds, 
and uh, doing some great work on, on all these things we've talked about, gratitude and resilience and all these uh, well-being behaviours and the character strengths and all this stuff that really underpins academic achievement as much as anything else. And the research supports that. Um, and the sixth formers were loving it. And I'd been in that school for two or three years working with the same year group, but obviously as, as a new cohort of students were moving into that year group. And then um, they stopped bringing me in because the parents had complained that all they wanted their sixth form children to learn about was careers, prospects and all of that stuff. And they didn't want all this well-being stuff. <laughs> and so the, the objections can come from lots of fields. And I suppose the, the, the other side of that is, you know, uh, school inspections, making that fit in and, and getting Ofsted in, in this country to, to see how, how what we do actually works, but also looking at the wider policy module. So whichever aspect of that you want to kind of unpick. Um, I'll come to you, Flora, because when you went to your school new, uh, as a head teacher, you were making a lot of these changes and, and I think you did hit quite a few of the barriers. So it'd be interesting to hear about that perspective. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so when I, when I started, obviously I brought Diana Pardo in who helped with the global learning and then um, obviously got you and lived in as well. Um, but I think the, a lot of the barriers did come from parents, um, staff, um, pretty much most stake, stakeholders in the school, just because it was new, it was different. Um, and they thought it was this, you know, I, I don't know what they thought it was, but they didn't see how, how it was going to help and how, what purpose it was going to serve their children. Um, so I think a lot of it is, first of all, obviously modeling it yourself um, as leaders in school, um, but then also making sure that everybody understands why and the purpose of what you're doing um, to bring everybody along. Um, one of the biggest things was about well-being of staff, actually, and it's funny that I had quite a number of people question me, including staff, about, you know, why? Why why are you so hung up on this leaving twice a week at 4 p.m. with nothing in your hands? Um, and a lot of a lot of uh, governors and parents were questioning because that was literally my first insight I ever did with the staff, and that was one of the first questions I got from governors um, and some parents asking, you know, we hear that you're letting teachers leave early. What are you doing? <laughs> um, and it seemed like this mad, crazy idea. Um, but I think what they thought was that teachers were efficient because they were working long hours, and these teachers were there often six, seven, eight o'clock at night. Um, and so I think it was just changing perceptions and making everyone realize why we were doing what we were doing. But the biggest thing for us with Purple Learning was the fact that actually children, it came from the children, it went home, and there was a buzz about Purple Learning, and there still is, and children will talk their ear off about Purple Learning and why it's important and how it helps them. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing is starting it as a leader yourself, bringing it into staff, making sure it becomes a part of the fabric, a part of the culture of everything that you do, and it permeates everything. Um, and, you know, putting well-being at the center of everything. People will question it, people doubt and question everything, anything new um, has changed. Um, and it's just about making sure that people understand the purpose and mm. see the benefit of it. And when people realize that it is in the whole purpose of it is to help everybody, to make everyone's lives actually better, um, I think they, they realize the importance as well. Thank you so much for that. Um, and uh, I'd like to uh, bring Kelly in on, uh, on this same question, because again, I know that um, 
with with Lesnar's Heath, it was obviously you and Kate making a lot of changes. Kate, the head teacher there, um, and uh, again the challenges that that brought. So, if you'd like to talk us through some of that and and how you've overcome some of those challenges to bring people on board. Yeah, just to follow on from what Flora was saying, I think it's really important to have a clear vision so that your stakeholders, and when I talk about stakeholders and when we think about whole school wellbeing, it's every single, not just within your school community, but also outside of your school community. So we're a very outward facing um, school and trust. So it started off with Kate and I um, creating a vision and selling that vision to the school governors. It's really important to have them on board. You know, they are the driving force for change in education and we need to be respectful around bringing them into part of that um, organisational change. And then when you've got a clear vision, you have to sell the why and be really respectful um, so you're not shoving well-being down people's throats because... For some people, their well-being, looking at their well-being is not looking at their well-being. So I think it's being really sensitive and respectful and having a wide, diverse offer for a diverse community um, and making sure that there's lots of um, support ready for everyone. Um, part of our process um, was for me to really empower um, our children because children really do love learning from other children. So what I effectively done was I set up initially a group of wellbeing ambassadors that started with four children. A couple of years later, we're now up to around 70 wellbeing ambassadors and another 40 wellbeing ambassadors that have graduated to be mental health champions. So what I've done is taught them um, some skills around mental health and well-being, how to notice their triggers for poor mental health, how to talk about mental health. And I think we do need to talk about mental health, not big feelings, because what we're doing is we're stigmatising um, our children to not talk about mental health. And what then wellbeing ambassadors and mental health champions do is they go out on the ground, they talk to the children, they talk to the parents, they talk to the staff, and they ask them simple questions like, what do you need to feel valued in this school? Do you feel a sense of belonging? If you're having a, um, a struggle, what would make you feel better? So they're, they're trickling um, their skills and that's having a ripple effect on our whole school community. And when I think about our parents, I started off with four parents. The magic number seemed to be four in the beginning, but I never gave up. I persevered um, because you have to give any wellbeing journey time um, to catch on so people see the benefits of it. I've had to date around 300 parents who've engaged with my Family Matters Bespoke Empowerment Programme. And what that does, it gives parents the opportunities to come into a safe space and explore who they are in the environment they live in. We know that so often parents are a product of their environment. And what that does is that trickles into their parenting capacity with their children. I've had families who've been on long-term safeguarding plans, who have come off them and stayed off them, and who are literally flourishing before my eyes. I think it's really important to have a diverse prescription for well-being. Talk to your people, understand where they're coming from and make sure that your recipe for well-being serves your community. Make sure it's honest, reliable, consistent and empowering. 
Wow. <laughs> uh, some some really, really important points there and really practical stuff as well in terms of how, how we make that happen and how we bring people on board. Um, so thank you so much for that. And it's clearly visible in, in the school in terms of everything that, that you've achieved there. Um, and Beck, I'll, I'm going to come to you because you're in a really interesting position um, with uh, University of Birmingham School in that you didn't come in and change something existing in the school that was already there, but you did actually go into a brand new school that, that was a completely different model to anything that any of those parents had seen or the community had seen. And what I find really interesting is that uh, within your school, perhaps it brings in more the, the policy side of things as well, because of, of course, the, the research that comes out of the um the um, Jubilee Centre for Character and Virtues that feeds into everything that you do at the school um, and how that perhaps influences the bigger picture on a policy level as well. So if you can kind of talk about how it was received from a local communities and stakeholder level, but also the work that's going on to inform the bigger picture, that would be brilliant. Okay, so in, in terms of um, community and, and family, we we built a school in an area that didn't have a school before. So I suppose one of the outcomes of character is, would character education at the core of a school actually attract parents and families? Um, otherwise we built a school that would be empty. And what we, what we actually found is that we became the most oversubscribed comprehensive school in the whole of Birmingham. I think we still, five years in, have a thousand people applying for 150 places and it, it when we've done research with the jubilee center with our parents it's because having a values or virtues led curriculum absolutely resonates with parents all parents want their children to flourish all parents want their children to be happy to be compassionate to show empathy to be resilient and of course they also want incredible results academic results but I think sometimes schools make the mistake of, of that being the driver. Um, and he did mention earlier on, Fred, that there, there is, I think, a perceived um, dichotomy between having character education and being an academic school. But we very much found, certainly with our year 11s that have just left, that if you get them to have a sense of moral purpose and agency and give them the tools they need to feel that they're empowered to, to um, go on this journey of, of self-improvement and flourishing, then they want to work hard and they want to do well. So uh, I think it's it's a mistake to say you, you yeah. can't have both. I think character education, well-being, positive education absolutely drives pupils to, to want to, to, to do their very best. Um, in terms, so so, um, I guess that that's um, testament to to what parents wanted. I think the other thing that's quite important as as well, if we're talking about the role of character education, is how it's affected staffing. So again, lots of schools are having staffing crises at the moment. We've never um, been short of specialist teachers because people want to come and work in our school because teachers teach because they want to make a difference to children's lives. Um, it's nice when you can get everyone to pass their exams, but it, I think it's it's seeing the difference that you can make long-term and the impact that you can have that, that really um, drives teachers to, to want to become teachers 
and more importantly to stay in education so that they don't leave disillusioned with schools becoming exam factories. Um, so we've we've always had a really incredible amount of staff applying to work in our school. We've also had, which is something we never expected, a lot of people who joined as professional members of professional services actually leaving that and retraining to be teachers. And I think all of these things have, have driven policy, I suppose, in that it, it, it's still character that will determine a lot of the um, school day structure. It's what determines curriculum. It's what determines enrichment. It's what's at the core of making sure that teachers' workload is is manageable and that we, we are making sure, as, as everyone has said, that our staff flourish as well. So it's it's all intertwined, I think. Absolutely. It really is. And um, it's, in, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought it back to this perceived dichotomy between um, academic and um, academic achievement and uh, the, the well-being and character side of things. Because, of course, if we look, for example, at, um, at IPEN, the Institute of uh, the International Positive Education Network, they have a really simple diagram explaining what uh, positive education is, and they have a double helix. And one strand is uh, well-being and character, and the other strand intertwined with that is uh, academic achievement. And if we look at um, so much of the research that's been done, certainly in, in, in positive psychology and positive education, it is that Actually, as you were saying, Beck, that once you actually put in the character work and the, the well-being work, then um, for a variety of reasons, one of which undoubtedly is that people want to do well then and want to apply themselves, that actually the academic flourishing follows as well. And um, I, I find it um, quite odd to think that, you know, you can think of flourishing as one or the other, because actually, in order to flourish, you're a whole human being. The child is a whole human being, the same with the staff. Um, and and so you need you need both. You need to be able to to get the academic side of things so that you, you're improving prospects and all of that kind of thing. But you need the well-being to underpin that. And when we look at um, the the you know if you look at it purely from a policy perspective and a cost perspective, which unfortunately you know if you're looking at policy, that's where it comes. You know, cost benefit analysis and that kind of thing. You know then it should be a no-brainer, really, because actually um, the, the cost implications to a country in terms of mental health issues long-term that start in childhood and in teenage years and then develop and develop into other things like addiction and crime and uh, unemployment and so on is phenomenal. So it, it absolutely makes sense to underpin from, from that perspective. I think most of us who are in this area and really passionate about positive education and character education do not come at this from a policy perspective and from a um, cost benefit analysis perspective but I think one of the things we have to remember is um, that we have to convince those that actually do fund what we do and we have to convince those that measure what we do and assess what we do um, that, that what we do matters and works. So sometimes it's interesting. I, I always say you have to almost play the game and, you know, you, you tell them all the stuff that matters in terms of academic results, but actually we do it for very different reasons and because it's the right thing to do to actually support children's well-being and staff well-being. And what you were saying, Beck, about staff well-being of course um 
the stats on that are, are phenomenal in terms of you know the, the, the attrition rates and but also that that thing that you said about you know why teachers teach and it's the first thing I asked in the in the book you know I said why did you become a teacher it was the first question I asked as I opened the book and um, when we look at the research that comes out every year um, in, in terms of staff well-being staff well-being survey that comes out every year uh, certainly the last two years the biggest um, response in that was always to make a difference um, and and when we go back to the the foundations of positive education through Professor Martin Zelligman in the US as well, uh, he always said, uh, you know, when you ask parents, for the most part, apart from the ones where obviously I've experienced that you know they just wanted career education for their children, but for for the most part, what parents actually want when you ask them, what do you want for your children? Never mind about school, but in general, they want their children to be well and to be happy. And um, then when you when you look at what teachers want, they want they want to make a difference. And yet schools traditionally are not set up for that. And so with just a, a couple of minutes left to go, um, I'll just come around to all of you and ask you to just give me a thought. I think a, a good question to end on here would be, you know, what are your hopes and dreams for education? Where do we go from here and what would you like to see happen? So we're going to keep our answers um, really short on this one so that we can finish at six o'clock. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'll start with you, Patrick, if I may. Oh, hang on, we can't see. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the future. I, I always am. I think I've got to be. I think we've got a, a profession full of wonderful teachers who want to do wonderful things and continue to do so. Uh, my hope is that we, we learn from the lessons we've learned from the pandemic and what's mattered. And I mean, lots of people talking about how to get the recovery curriculum right. We've got to put recovery in place or a curriculum in place that supports the mental health and well-being of staff and students. I'm hoping we learn from that. I definitely will be doing that and cementing that. And I hope my hope is that the rest of the schools will much more prioritise uh, those to remove some of the toxicity from some of our schools. Thank you so much. And I'll just go around as as I see you on my screen. So I'll come to you next, Kelly, on the same question. What are your hopes and dreams? Um, my hopes are is is that um, purposeful well-being um, is within our curriculums and being in this, it being used effectively. And I hope to see more policy change within government to look after our teachers, actually really hear them, hear where their sticking points are, to help keep them in the profession and work with our school communities rather than, than giving us a done-to um, prescription. It's not helpful. So that's my hope. Thank you so much for that. Um, and Flora, over to you next. Um, I think a lot of people have been saying it is an opportunity we have now to make a huge overhaul to education. Um, and my hope is that we do. We all work together to change the way education is, um, to change the system and to seriously put well-being at the center and heart of absolutely everything, especially teachers coming into um, the profession um, to make sure that we are putting well-being at the heart of everything we do for children and teachers. Thank you so much. Um, and Beck, I'll come to you next. Oh, hang on, we can't hear you. I'll unmute you. Um, I'm also in incredibly optimistic like Patrick. I think we ha our children are just phenomenal and they just need uh, a little bit of guidance and a little bit of our trust. And I think 
they will change the world. And I think they've lived through a time where they've seen how important kindness is and gratitude is. And uh, I'm really hopeful for, for what we can do together. Thank you so much. And certainly listening to all of you, um, I feel that wonderful sense of hope again that I felt when I was interviewing you. And then when uh, months and months after having interviewed you, I re-listened to the interviews and re-read my notes and this real sense of hope. And it's great to hear that again, because we have been going through such a challenging time to actually hear that hope and optimism about what might change and what we want to see. And I really hope that that we do see that change. Absolutely. Um, so this is it. We, we've we've been going for an hour and I'm sure we could uh, talk about this for absolutely hours, but um, it's been an amazing hour. Um, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I'm about to do it all again in an hour's time with a different panel um, at seven o'clock. It's, it's feeling like quite an emotional roller coaster, actually, because of some of the amazing stuff that we're talking about and the change that we want to see in education. Um, so the panellists will be international again at seven o'clock. So we've got Serdar Ferrit, um, who is based both in the UK and in Finland. Uh, we've got Ian Flintoff, based in the UK. Julie Goldstein, based in Connecticut in the USA. And Katrina Mankani, based in Dubai. So quite a varied um panel there at seven o'clock um, and as always if you can't join us live then the replays will be available both on youtube and on the facebook happiness speaker page um, and on the for flourishing sake um, page where all of these details about all these panels are the, the embedded videos will be there so you can watch it in all in one place as well um, and uh, it would be remiss of me as the book's author not to remind you again to get your copy of for flourishing sake which is available for kindle Thank you. <laughs> yeah, let's. <laughs> um, so it's available on Kindle today. Um, so uh, do get your copy. So all that's left is um, to thank you for watching and to thank you in advance for those reviews and to thank you for buying the book. Um, but also to give another huge, huge thank you to the panelists today. So Patrick, Kelly, Flora, and Beck, thank you so, so much for your time today, but also for all your time in actually getting the book out there and sharing all your wonderful stories with me. Um, and a huge thank you to the wonderful Rebecca Osborne, who's been drawing this brilliant, brilliant um, uh, animation, uh, what's the virtual drawing? I don't know. I, I haven't got words anymore, but this brilliant, brilliant illustration, that's the word I'm looking for, of everything we've talked about today. So um, thank you so much, Rebecca. And Rebecca will be back at seven o'clock as well for the next panel. Um, so thank you every, very much, everybody. And uh, we'll see you again soon. Thank you for tuning in to the For Flourishing Sake podcast. If you found this episode useful, please give it a five-star rating on iTunes to help it reach more people, and please spread the word. Also, if you haven't already, remember to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. For Flourishing Sake is available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Deezer. The book by the same name came out on Kindle on the 18th of June and will be out on paperback on the 21st of August. You'll find it on all the major online book retailer sites. It's jam-packed with evidence-based strategies for whole school positive education with case study examples from a wide range of schools from around the world. So why not order your Kindle copy now or pre-order your paperback so you'll receive it as soon as it's published? 
If you'd like to get in touch with questions or comments or to contribute to a future episode, please contact me via Twitter at Flourishing Ed. You can also leave comments on individual episode pages on the forflourishingsake.com website. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, for flourishing sake, have a great week.